Hi, listeners. This is Ashley Adams, and I'm looking to put together a House of Cards poker team to compete in team tournaments in New Hampshire. So I'm looking for players in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, who would be willing to be part of a House of Cards team to play in team tournaments. If you are interested, please contact us at info at houseofcardsradio.com. Info at houseofcardsradio.com. Hey, you serious about poker? And winning 7-Card Stud by Ashley Adams is a must-have for stud players of all levels. In winning 7-Card Stud, the World Series of Poker Veteran takes you through a series of lessons and strategies designed to make you a better player in all phases of your game. The techniques of betting, the cards to play, how to read the other players, the art of bluffing, you'll learn to master them all. Winning 7-Card Stud by professional poker player Ashley Adams. Available at Amazon.com. Hi, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. I just wanted to uh, mention something, that if any of you have any poker questions that you would like to ask, we are always interested in your questions and comments about the show, about the guests, strategy questions that could be practical questions about where and how to find the game. Send your questions to info at houseofcardsradio.com. And you can also get our tweets on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. We're very interested in them. And of course, if they are particularly interesting, we'll put them on the air and answer them here in our segment of mailbag. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC Radio. You know what cheers me up? What? Rolled up aces over kings. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. The House of Cards. Today, the game is different. With author and professional poker player Ashley Adams. Okay, you have some skill. Good evening, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. You're listening to House of Cards. And I got to say, what a great way to start the week. Uh, At least those of you who are listening on Monday night, it's a great way to start the week. We have uh, one of the greatest, the greatest men in the poker world, I think, truly, as an individual. Uh, Mike Sexton is going to be our guest. We're going to talk to him for the bulk of the hour. We'll have a, uh, a mailbag segment after him. But for those of you who don't know, Mike Sexton is an author, wrote for Card Player for many years. He's a longtime professional poker player, having uh, cashed in 47 World Series of Poker events. He's uh, second on the list of people who have made final tables. He's, of course, the famous host of the World Poker Tournament with Vince Van Patten. He has uh, been described as the ambassador of the game. He's an entrepreneur, having been the the face of party poker when it first came out and for a number of years after that. I think of him as poker's renaissance man, Mike Sexton. So please stay tuned. We'll have a quick commercial break, but we will be back with Mike Sexton. Hi, listeners. This is Ashley Adams, and I'm looking to put together a House of Cards poker team to compete in team tournaments in New Hampshire. So I'm looking for players in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, who would be willing to be part of a House of Cards team to play in team tournaments. If you are interested, please contact us at info at houseofcardsradio.com. Info at houseofcardsradio.com. Hey, you serious about poker? Then winning 7-Card Stud by Ashley Adams is a must-have for stud players of all levels. In winning 7-Card Stud, the World Series of Poker Veteran takes you through a series of lessons and strategies designed to make you a better player in all phases of your game. The techniques of betting, the cards to play, how to read the other players, the art of bluffing. You'll learn to master them all. Winning 7-Card Stud by professional poker player Ashley Adams. Available at Amazon.com. 
Hi, listeners. This is Ashley Adams, professional poker player, author, and host of House of Cards. You can all, wherever you're listening to our show, we're now blanketing the United States. You can send in your questions or comments about the show to info at houseofcardsradio.com. And you can also get our tweets on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash H-O-C radio. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC Radio. You're listening to the House of Cards. Poker. 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 I shall give it to you in a word. Poker. Welcome back, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. You're listening to House of Cards. And as promised, we are joined by the one man in poker whom I consider to be poker's renaissance man. He's... An author, he's a player, he's, of course, the famous, world-famous host of the World Poker Tournament. He's a true ambassador of the game and an entrepreneur, Mike Sexton. Mike, are you there? I am, actually. Well, I'm very glad that you're joining us. I think most people know you from your role in the World Poker Tour as a host and commentator. And many, of course, know you from the Internet world of your work with Party Poker. Some of us go back to your time as a as a serious full-time professional poker player, but I'd like you to share with us at first how it is that you got into this fascinating career as a poker player. How did you get your start, and and what made you feel that you uh, wanted to be a pro? Well, I started playing when I was young, about 13 years old, honestly, and the guy that taught me how to play poker, Danny Robinson, later became Chip Reese's partner, and they went to Las Vegas in the early 70s and took the town by storm. Won a million dollars the first summer there. That was back in the 70s. And uh, so little did I know that the guy was teaching me was a world-class, you know, many consider the best seven-card stud player in the world. So uh, he kept me broke all through high school. But when I got off to college, uh, you know, I went to Ohio State. And once I got to the dorms and we started playing cards, didn't matter if it was gin rummy or euchre or hearts or poker, whatever it was, I could see instantly that I had, you know, more skills and ability than the other guys in, in all those games. So, you know, I knew I had an aptitude for cards even back then. And then when I got out of college and joined the Army, got out of the service and took a regular job and uh, started finding home poker games in North Carolina to play in. And I soon discovered I was making more money in the home games than I was making in the at the job. So I decided to quit the job and just start playing poker for a living. And I did that in 1977. And literally, I didn't have a paycheck for over 20 years. And the only paycheck I got even then was when I was writing for Card Player Magazine. So, uh, you know, really, it's just one of those things that I always loved to play poker, had an aptitude for it, and I was very fortunate that, you know, I, I lived in North Carolina for about seven, eight years prior to moving to Las Vegas in 1985, playing poker for a living. So that bode well for me when I got out there. When you were, just to go back to that part of your life that I don't think people knew so much about, which is playing professionally in North Carolina... How did you go about finding games, and was there ever any risk back then of getting arrested or getting held up like they were in Texas from time to time? Well, you know, there really probably was in some places. I was very fortunate in all those years. I ran a game myself for, you know, me and another guy ran it a day or two a week for about eight years, and uh, everybody in town knew about the game. I look back on it now, it's like the eighth wonder of the world that we never got robbed or never got arrested, and... and uh, uh, but I was just very fortunate that the games I played in, you know, were honest games and, and, you know, they never got robbed, they never got busted. So I was really fortunate early in my career that I didn't have to go through what those guys down in Texas had to go through, you know, uh, driving the white line, as they say. You right. know? And, you know, unfortunately for me, when you find a couple of poker games and, and there's a player or two that invites you to another game, and so you always have plenty of games to play in, and I always did anyway. And... uh so it just worked out well for me, and uh, I really, really enjoyed the days that I played professionally in North Carolina. And even then, in the middle of the Bible Belt, it never bothered me way back when to say I played poker for a living. I was never embarrassed about it or never ashamed of it. And, and uh, you know, so when you go to cocktail parties or something back then, people say, what do you do for a living? I'd say I play poker for a living. Their eyes bug out, you know, and they say, what? You gamble for a living? <laughs> I say, no, I play poker for a living. <laughs> And, of course, they really don't understand that. So then you explain, you know, if me or any top pro sat down with eight amateur players and we played three nights a week, six hours a day, 
you know, at the end of the year, the top pro, the chance of him losing in that game are about a million to one. And when you explain it to somebody like that, then they recognize, well, you know, poker is a game of skill. There is something to it, and and uh, that's the reason we have professional poker players. Was it really all that incredibly consistent? I mean, I guess back then in the se- late 70s, there weren't nearly the kind of strategy books out there. People didn't have access to uh, strategy books the way they do today. Were you really that much better than everybody else? Was it just like a honeypot, or were there other people that were competing for the one or two producers that uh, that fed you all? Yeah, basically that was it. I mean, there was a couple other you know, I would say professional players in the game even, you know. But back then, you always had four or five guys that were in business, tobacco farmers and, uh, you know, bookmakers or somebody that were producers, as you said. And, you know, those were the guys that always made the game. And certainly there was always one or two other guys that you knew was a very good player that, you you know, you didn't avoid. Sometimes you had to clash with them. But, you know, you just understood that uh, where the money was coming from, and it was from the guys that, just had jobs and enjoyed playing poker one or two nights a week. And, and uh, you know, fortunately for, you know, pro poker players, there are amateurs who are very successful businessmen who enjoy getting out of the house and playing poker a couple of days a week. And they don't resent uh, a full-time professional coming in and carving them up because did you have certain skills of making yourself wanted in a game even though you were almost always winning and they were almost always losing? How did you accomplish that? Well, first of all, I think if you present yourself right in any poker game, people aren't really going to care if you win or lose. In other words, if you're not a jerk, if you're not a so to speak, uh, and, you know, you behave properly and, and laugh and tell jokes and don't criticize the way people play and, and do the right thing, so to speak, then I think that, uh, you know, you're not going to have a problem. You know, when it comes to playing in games, people like to play with you. If you're fun to play with, you know, they're there to have a good time. People got to realize that. When you're playing poker, even when you go to casinos, right. you have to recognize that people come to casinos and come to play poker to enjoy themselves. And they don't enjoy themselves when people berate them and tell them how bad a player they are and criticize them on how they play pots and embarrass them for losing. And therefore, those players end up eventually quit coming to the casino because it's not fun for them anymore. So, you know, I think that whether you play a home game or in a casino, you know, you have to know how to handle you know, the live one, so to speak, and, and make sure they have a good time. And if they put a bad beat on you, you just have to knock the table and say, nice hand, you know. Boy, I can't, I can't agree with you more. I, I wish more of the serious, especially the serious younger players, who seem to have, a lot of them seem to have an attitude of trying to prove that they're better than everybody else. And all it does is, as you said, it just pushes the live ones away because who wants to play and lose and be miserable i mean you're willing to lose if you're having a good time you can write it off as entertainment but if you're miserable because somebody's berating you as you said or mocking you or just making you feel bad well why come back (laughs) well that's exactly right and certainly i agree with you young players and some old ones too need to take heed of that and, and you know Know how to behave properly at the table is what I say. I agree. And I, I think that... more as a, as a pro player when I see other so-called pros, you know, berate the amateur players at the table and tell them how dumb they are when they outdraw them in a pot and how bad they play. Because literally it's taking money out of your pocket, and I think you should be offended by it if you're another player at the table when someone else is behaving poorly at the table and criticizing other players on how they're playing. It's their money. They can play how they want to. I I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I'm going back to now. It's 1985, and you're a successful pro in North Carolina. What made you decide to make the jump? I mean, I noticed that's the year that you won the World Series of Poker bracelet in Stud 8 in uh, the World Series of Poker in Las Vegas. What made you make the jump and stick to Las Vegas as opposed to going back to North Carolina, where presumably you had a pretty good existence as a pro? Uh, well, I did, and I'd gone to Vegas, a, you know, a number of times before, but never during the World Series of Poker. And I always wanted to play the World Series of Poker, like all poker players did. But back then, I was an avid Little League baseball coach, and our seasons were in April. We practiced in April, and the season started in May. And that's exactly when the World Series of Poker took place back in those days. But finally, I carved a week out of my schedule and said, I'm going out to play the World Series. Back in those days... You're going to play one event every other day. So in a week's time, you're going to play three tournaments. So I played three tournaments. I made two final tables. 
<laughs> right then I knew if I was going to be a poker player, I would never miss the World Series of Poker again. So I decided to move out to Vegas shortly after that. So, Well, you've certainly had a successful career at the table. I was just looking uh, at the on, at the stats that they have on people these days, Mike. And, of course, they, they didn't used to have it back then. But I noticed, if this is correct, that you've had 44 caches in World Series of Poker events. Does that sound about right? I think it's actually 47 or 8, I think. Well, okay, maybe this is old information. Or, uh, 19 or 20 final tables, and, you know, I've actually, an amazing stat really is that I've, I'm tied for second in terms of most caches in the main event at the World Series of Poker, and I didn't even play it until 1992, so <laughs> you know, some of those guys were playing since the 70s, so. Right, and then it was small fields, you almost made the final table just by sitting down in the early days. Yeah, so, but anyway, it's, uh, uh, you know, I've had a good run, and, and you know, playing tournament poker. Of course, back when I played the circuit for about 15 years, you didn't have anywhere near the prize money that these guys have out there today. I mean, back then, when you made a $40,000 score or even a $20,000 score, that was big money back then. So you were happy to get that. You couldn't win over 100000 unless you won something at the World Series of Poker. Right. That's certainly true. And I, I think, you know, you're clearly – I met you, um, you – I'm sure you don't remember, but I met you, Mike – when the uh, World Poker Finals at Foxwoods was in their second year, and I believe you were returning, having won the inaugural uh, main event at the World Poker Finals at Foxwoods. Does this ring a bell? I mean, do you remember playing yeah. in that and winning the... I think it was... Oh, yeah. And yeah, um, was we met, and I remember what a classy guy you seemed to be, and I know that because of your exposure on television and the way you behave as a host and also at the table, a lot of people probably see you as a role model. What I'm wondering is when you started out in Las Vegas in 1985, way before television, way before all the books that are out there, were there any people that you saw as role models for you? I mean, I know you said Danny Robinson was your mentor when it came to learning the game, but how about in Las Vegas? Were there any pros that you said, boy, I want to be like him, or I'm going to follow in the footsteps of so-and-so? Well, truthfully, all the high-stakes players back in those days were like the gods of the poker world and the legends of the game, and talking about Chip Reese and Doyle Brunson and Puggy Pearson and these kind of guys, and Stu Unger, and, you know, they were the high rollers and the big players, and you wanted to play like them. You wanted to be as successful as they were. You don't want to have money, but truthfully, I believe the World Series of Poker didn't grow for a lot of years in my mind like it should have because the world champions back then never did anything for the game. <laughs> they would win, and, and uh, they would never go to casinos or do seminars or do anything, do public appearances, do tours, do TV shows. It was very unfortunate, I thought, that the World Series was stymied because nobody ever promoted the game back in those days. And to me, the world champion was the guy that had to do it. But it didn't seem to ever happen. And uh, unfortunately, as much as I idolized those top players and world champions back in the day when I first came around, the behavior by these top players, most of them anyway, was just diabolical in my mind. I mean, Stu Unger, Puggy Pearson, and and some of these guys. The way they behave. <laughs> Not very good role models. Oh, my God, they would throw cards at the dealer and cuss them out, and it was just terrible back in those days. And these were the world champions that I felt should be setting the standard and the example of exemplary behavior, and it was just the opposite. They were the worst-behaved players. So what changed? What do you think? Because if you look today, there are still badly-behaved players, but poker clearly has been promoted beyond anybody's conception of what might happen. It's become... Uh, I don't know if, if it's ubiquitous, but it's certainly out there in a way that nobody could have anticipated. What changed? What really was the trigger that turned poker into the worldwide, in-everybody's-house event that it's become? Very simple. It was the World Poker Tour. And make no mistake about it, they were the show that put poker on in prime time on a weekly basis. Because of the popularity of that show, ESPN expanded their coverage of the World Series. Other poker shows took off. But television is what did it. It was the reason for the poker explosion. Yes, Internet poker came along a little bit, and Moneymaker won and all that. But the primary reason for the explosion of poker was television, and it was the World Poker Tour. And it certainly changed the game. Do you think all of the changes are for the good, or do you think some of the changes that have come about with the television and the mass media of poker, are there any negatives in there? Well, you know, the negatives, obviously, are... 
you know, that the fields are so large at the World Series and some of these other big events that, you know, people feel like, you know, it's, it's just, you know, almost impossible to win them anymore. But uh, the truth is the paydays are so big when you get there that it makes up for a lot of uh, downtime, so to speak, where you don't get there. But, uh, you know, I think it's obviously good for poker players the more people that play the game. If there was a downside, and believe it or not, as a pro player, it's the educational tools that young players have now where you can become so good so quickly because of the software, the books, and all the rest. You get to practice so many hands and play so much online. I mean, now I played the circuit for 15 years, and a guy can get as much experience as I did, you know, in about six months' time now, to tell you the truth, playing all the tournaments he gets to play online. So certainly, uh, uh, you know, they have an advantage in terms of uh, knowledge and access and, and, you know, bright kids are coming into the game now and uh, college guys and, uh, you know, so it's it's tougher now. I do believe it's much tougher now because there's so many good players now because so many people have read all the books and have done all the studies and are following the software and they're rerunning programs and watching great players and see how they play. And, and certainly, you know, that's what you have to do. I mean, poker's not like anything else in life. Those that prepare to win do better than those that don't. Right. Um, I'm getting a cue from my producer that we need to take a brief break, about a minute. Can you hang on? I have about a thousand more questions to ask. Um, can you hang on for about a minute and we'll come back sure. after a break? I can do it. Great. Thanks, Mike. We'll be right back after a break with Mike Sexton. Hi, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. I just wanted to uh, mention something, that if any of you have any poker questions that you would like to ask, we are always interested in your questions and comments about the show, about the guests, strategy questions. They could be practical questions about where and how to find the game. Send your questions to info at houseofcardsradio.com. And you can also get our tweets on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. We're very interested in them. And of course, if they're particularly interesting, we'll put them on the air and answer them here in our segment of mailbag. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. Great Moments in History In November 1863, on a train headed for Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, President Abraham Lincoln decides to write the important address himself. This is a great outline. Fantastic. If yours doesn't stack up, you won't get a chance to look at it. I don't know what that means. I was going to let you see it, but I changed my mind. I can go write it. That thing sucks. June 2008, House of Cards began podcasting. Go to houseofcardsradio.com and click on the podcast button for all recent show downloads. Hi, listeners, this is Ashley Adams, and I'm looking to put together a House of Cards poker team to compete in team tournaments in New Hampshire. So I'm looking for players in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, who would be willing to be part of a House of Cards team to play in team tournaments. If you are interested, please contact us at info at houseofcardsradio.com. Info at houseofcardsradio.com. Hey, you serious about poker? Then winning 7-Card Stud by Ashley Adams is a must-have for stud players of all levels. In winning 7-Card Stud, the World Series of Poker Veteran takes you through a series of lessons and strategies designed to make you a better player in all phases of your game. The techniques of betting, what cards to play, how to read the other players, the art of bluffing, you'll learn to master them all. Winning 7-Card Stud by professional poker player Ashley Adams. Available at Amazon.com. Poker players, listen up. Your right to play poker continues to come under attack. But with over 1 million members, the Poker Players Alliance is dedicated to protecting your right to play this great American pastime. Even if you've never played a hand of online poker, the Poker Players Alliance is fighting for you. No matter where you choose to play, the PPA is working hard to defend you, your rights, and the game of poker. 
The PPA is making great strides, but we still need your help. We have sent a clear message to lawmakers and others committed to prohibiting your right to play poker. We are organized and we vote. Add your voice to our cause and join the Poker Players Alliance today. Visit www.joinppa.org and become part of the fight to save poker. It only takes a few minutes to make a difference. The Poker Players Alliance, fighting to protect your freedom to play the game we love. This This is is the House of Cards. This is your poker education. Let's play some cards. Welcome back, listeners. For those of you who are listening, we are talking with the renaissance man of poker, Mike Sexton. And, Mike, you were just making a point about the the fact that new players, players today, have a much quicker learning curve. What I'm wondering is, do you find that the very young players, the 21, 22, 23-year-olds, are better than the old professionals that you grew up in the poker world with or are they just different or what do you think about comparing them to uh the old giants that you admired when you were starting out well i'm an old school guy and i still believe the old school guys could play with any of the young guys i really wish the younger was alive today so uh, i think he'd be far and away the greatest and the biggest star in poker by a mile if he were still alive playing all these tournaments now but um you know, I do think as a group, the young guys are sharper than most guys that are older. I think that they're more educated, and I just think that they're more aggressive. And honestly, they're, they're fearless. And because of that aggression and, you know, their understanding of the game, that they're terrific players. I think if there's a weakness of the online guys that come into the real world is that they don't pick up on the tails good enough, and they don't realize that they give off tails of their own because they're used to playing online poker. So... Once they get that ironed out, they're tough to deal with. I'll tell you, they're good. Yeah. Do you do you do any tutoring? Do you have like your own students that you uh, mentor? I don't because I really don't have time to do it, honestly. And uh, you know, I do teach the WPT boot camps once in a while, and I do some things, some seminars, but. I don't have time to really teach private lessons or anything, no. Well, I, I got a question for you then, because this is actually good, because you don't have any bias because you're nurturing somebody specifically or a group of people, although you do teach at the boot camp. I meet a lot of players, and they're home game champions, and they want to know if they have what it takes to really make it as a full-time pro. What do you say to somebody? Because people must come up to you all over the place, Mike. You're a celebrity. You do the poker boot camps. You go to different tournaments. When somebody asks you, how do they know if they're ready to really make it to the level of a professional, having been a successful amateur, what are the ingredients that you think they need to have to be a successful, full-time professional poker player? Well, obviously they need the skills to be able to survive and play terrific poker. That's number one. But probably more importantly, I think, if you want to play poker for a living, you have to love to play the game. And I don't mean like to play poker. I mean love to play it. Because I don't care how successful you are, what kind of stakes you play, if you're miserable when you're playing poker, you're going to be miserable in life. And it doesn't matter if you win or lose. And, and I think you need to love the game. I was fortunate that I really loved to play. When one game broke up, I couldn't wait to the next day to get back to the next game. But, uh, you know, that's when I was coming around and, and playing when I was young. And, and I was just very fortunate that I really enjoyed the game. But the young players now, I would say a couple things. A, I think, number one, keep your day job as long as you can. Play inside games and, and track your records. Be honest with yourself. See what you're beating and what games. you got to know what games you're beating and what limits that you're beating. When you're beating that limit pretty good, you can take a step up. But pretty soon you're going to discover that the higher limits get tougher and tougher. And you got to be in your comfort zone. So... You know, when you play a limit that you're not doing that well in or something, you got to drop back down, and that's a, that's a tough part for most players. Nobody wants to go back down and start over again, but you got to swallow your pride and get to a level that you can beat where you have no chance making it as a pro, and, you know, you have to realize that. I also think if you're married, if you have kids, if you have a family, it's far, far, far more difficult to try being a poker pro because I do think that single guys have a big edge, you can stay out late when the games are good. You don't have to worry about coming home for dinner. 
you know, and, and I just think it's tough for family guys. But that added responsibility and extra mouths to feed makes it much tougher. Well, it's it's. I hear commentary in the background from your son on this whole conversation. Uh, how has that changed your life, having a uh, a young child at home? I mean, I know you got to be on the road for the World Poker Tour. Um, how do you deal with being a family man and being in the professional poker industry, Mike? Well, uh, truthfully, I'm <laughs> fortunate that uh, you know I don't have to grind it out and play poker for a living every day anymore. And I still enjoy playing when I get a chance to, but my priorities now have changed. And, you know, now it's my priorities are being a good father rather than a good poker player. So, you know, I've been very blessed at this stage of my life that we've had a child and the first child for both of us. So we're excited about it. He's so much fun. And, and uh, you know, I'm just not out there, uh, you know, beating the bush playing poker tournaments or playing a lot of poker games anymore. And, you know, it's not my priority anymore. I understand that. And uh, I know I have a family, and I've raised uh, two lovely girls. And uh, I tell you, I, I had an interesting uh, dilemma when my older daughter uh, started to play poker and uh, became a poker dealer, at least part-time. And I, I'm, and I wondered how I would feel if she decided to become a professional poker player or even a dealer full-time. Let me ask you the question. Let's say we're 15, 16, 18 years from now, and your son has been playing a little bit in high school and maybe starting to play in college and says, Dad, I think I'm going to go uh, out on the tour and, uh, and do this full-time. I've been winning on the Internet. I'm, I'm doing very well in the games that I play in. I want to become a professional like you did. What do you say to him? Well, I never <laughs> recommend number one, but number two. You never what? I'm sorry. I missed the first sentence. Yeah. Yeah, no, I said I would never recommend it. That's the first thing to any child of mine because I know how tough it is. But on the other hand, if that was his passion, that was his dream, he was good at it. The only thing I require first is that you get a college education. After you get your college education, you can make the decisions that you feel are best for your life. And if that's what you want to try for a while, then go for it. But uh, uh, before he ever constituted becoming a poker pro, uh, I'm going to insist he gets a college education. So these guys that are dropping out of college and winning the World Series of Poker main events and becoming millionaires, you don't see them as the proper role models for uh, for people who are in your life, I guess. Well, I don't know about being a proper role model. Obviously, it's worked out for him and Joe Cotta and some of these other guys, and, and you know, I'm happy for them. Yeah. But for every guy that's successful like that, you've got a 1,000 or 2,000 or more that are not successful, and, and uh, you know, now they've lost the opportunity to get a college degree in quest of becoming a poker pro, and they realize they can't do that either, uh, then they get real dilemmas here, and, and I think it's very tough, and, and uh, you know, I think it's far more important to get your education first, then become a poker pro if that's what you want to try, because then you can fall back on your education, at least get another job if you need to. Well, we agree on that completely. It's, it's like uh, guys that would drop out of school because they want to become a professional basketball player or something. Sure, one out of a million kids gets to make it big on the professional circuit in any sport, but there are lots and lots of people who don't. Um, before we go, Mike, I, I had a question for you. You've been so... Uh, instrumental in, in so many different parts of the poker industry as a player, as a host, as a writer. What do you see going forward uh, in the poker world? Do you see, first of all, the UIGEA, which killed party poker in this country, which to me was a travesty. Do you see that eventually being overturned or at least um, nullified in some way? Do you see online poker coming back gangbusters? Do you see other games catching on? What do you see for the next five, six years in the poker world? Well, I really do see in the UIGEA getting overturned, number one. And number two, I believe that poker has become so popular and so many people like to play it, and there's so much money at it, and every state and the federal government needs money, that I believe it's going to get regulated and legalized, as it should, incidentally. You know, those that want to play can play. Those that don't, don't. And, you know, nothing would make players happier than... They know that they're playing on a safe site. They know they're going to get paid if they win. They know that, you know, they're getting, you know, the sites they're on are monitored, so to speak. And and then the, and the companies that are running these great sites, then they're going to have a chance to advertise, you know, their product on television and, and wherever they like. So I think it's a win-win for everybody. Those that don't want to play don't have to play. But certainly they're going to benefit from 
more pay for the police department, the fire department, and our servicemen, and whatever else the funds might be used for. So I, I think it's definitely, you know, an advantage for everybody to legalize and regulate online poker. Now, having said that, where do I think the poker world's going? Well, number one, I think to really take the next big step in the poker world, we've got to get more advocated toward the charity poker world. In other words, yes, I've been the PGA Tour it's so successful because they're the largest contributors to charities in the United States, I believe. And, and because of that, they don't have any trouble getting sponsors for their events. And it's big-time stuff. They raise a lot of money for worthwhile causes. And I think the poker world could do the same thing. And I believe that everybody in the industry, whether you're a player, whether you're in management, whether you're a casino, everybody can do their part and help by hosting charity poker events and by contributing maybe 1% of your prize money to worthwhile charities. And if we started doing that, where we'd literally raise millions and millions of dollars for charity, even the most anti-gambling foes out there would take a step back and say, whoa, you know, these poker people are pretty good. You know, this is nice what they're doing for these worthwhile causes. And I think once we start doing that, we're going to open a lot of eyes that people who may have been against poker and gambling, et cetera. You know, and I think it's time that we do take that step into the charity aspect of poker. Now, a lot of people are doing it, and there's a lot of charity events. And I've been fortunate that we've started PokerGives.org, which is set up specifically for the poker world to be able to have some place to contribute funds that go to worthwhile charities. And so I'm proud of starting that, and I'm hoping that the whole industry catches on to it and everybody supports it. Tell us a little bit about PokerGives.org. What is it, and how do people get involved in it? Well, you get involved in it. We're going to designate September as Poker Month across the United States. We're open to all the casinos, we'll charity events for Poker Gives, where 50% of the prize money will go to this uh, Poker Gives. Currently, we're supporting three charities. Three we're supporting are the Paralyzed Veterans of America, Special Olympics, and the Intrepid Fallen Heroes Funds. And certainly, we're looking to expand upon that. And we're looking for national charities that we believe everybody is going to be in favor of. So we don't want to do anything that some right. people might be against. Right, so far, controversial. Anything that we're supporting. And, uh, you know, that's what we're targeting. And I believe if everybody in the industry got behind Poker Gives, that we could literally raise millions of dollars for these worthwhile causes. And if you do that, now you're going to get the attention of sponsors. They'll come in and put money up for events. And I just think it's a win-win for everybody. So is are there a number of named pros that have already jumped on board to be part of this? Is it something that's coming up for the first time uh, September of, of 10, or did you already kick it off in 09 or before? Yeah, we, off in 09, we had our first event at the Golden Nugget in Las Vegas, and it was a nice, successful little event. And we're looking to expand it to all casinos nationwide. Obviously, we love pros to jump on board. It was founded by myself and Linda Johnson, Jan Fisher, and Lisa Tenner. So oh. there's four of us involved, and we've just hired a, a staff person that we're going to pay out of our pocket. Ninety-nine or 95% of all monies that we collect will go to these charities. So, you know, it's it's uh, something I believe is going to be good for the industry, good for the poker world, and certainly good for the charities. Well, that's terrific. We're happy to help in any way. Linda and Jan and, of course, Lisa Tenner have all been on this show, and uh, we'd love to be a participant in any way that we can. Um, let me just quickly uh, change gears a little, and I know you're a very humble guy, but talk a little bit about being uh, elected to the Hall of Fame, the Poker Hall of Fame. What? How, how did that happen, and how did you feel about it? Well, I really felt good about it, honestly, because it was the first time that a process was used to select members to the Poker Hall of Fame. And the process included the fans who nominated players and then the media and the Living Hall of Fame members that had to vote the players in. And, you know, there were nine very extremely worthy candidates this year for the Hall of Fame. I was the only one that happened to get in. But I do believe that most everyone on that list is going to be in the Poker Hall of Fame at some point in the future with me. So I was very honored to be in that nomination class that I was in. And... You know, it's a great honor. I mean, to me, it's the the ultimate tribute, uh, you know, to a career, so to speak. It's like a career ultimate achievement award, so to speak, and that's why I look at it. And, and so I'm honored that, you know, you're always going to be up there associated with the greats of the game, like a Doyle Brunson, a Chip Reese, a Stu Unger, 
Johnny Moss. I mean, the true legends of poker, uh, you know, my name will always be associated with them, even long after I'm gone. So, uh, you know, that's pretty special. And, you know, a reporter asked me, uh, you know, what was the neatest thing about getting inducted in the Poker Hall of Fame? And I said, well, to me, the neatest thing is that when my son gets to junior high and high school, all the other kids will be saying, wow, Sexton's old man's in the Poker Hall of Fame. That's really cool. <laughs> That's great. Uh, for our listeners who don't know, everybody knows that the Baseball Hall of Fame is in Cooperstown. Where is the Hall of Fame, and how do people visit it and see it and look at the plaques, and uh, where is it? Well, it used to be down at Binion's Horseshoe Casino for all those years when right. they had it down there. And the problem was people would come in and steal the pictures off the wall. So it's <laughs> so good down there. So now I understand that Harris uh, in the World Series or somebody is going to uh, activate uh, the, uh, you know, the the Poker Hall of Fame and, and put it up on display somewhere in Las Vegas where people are going to be able to see it when they come to town. So I'm happy that they're involved in that project and it's going to happen because, you know, you want people to be able to tour through there to see who's in the Poker Hall of Fame. And I was actually the 38th nominee, but, you know, some of the early nominees included, uh, you know, Hoyt and Wild Bill Hickok and some of these people that, uh, right. you know, that... We're just sort of characters rather than really players. But well, you're the uh, first one that was selected in a in a real way, as opposed to just somebody just deciding who's going to go in. You were really part of a selection process that involved the public at large. So to me, that's you were the really first democratically elected member of the Hall of Fame. Well, what's really cool is I always be the answer to a trivia question: Who was the first player that was ever nominated and elected to the Poker Hall of Fame? And then that would be me. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't think of a guy who's more deserving. Well, I appreciate that, actually. Thanks a lot. And it was a great honor. And they had a tremendous uh, Hall of Fame dinner for me uh, the night of the main event of the World Series of Poker. And Doyle Brunson and Jack Benyon, a lot of people spoke at it. And it was just a terrific evening and a great night and, uh, you know, something that I always cherish. Well, you know, I can't think of a better way to end except for one thing, the site the website for poker gives we'd like to put it on our website so that people can find out more and if there are events in the area wherever they may be that they could participate is what is the website it's pokergives.org pokergives.org fair enough we will put that on our website mike you've been you've been a wonderful guest if anything develops with either pokergives.org or the World Poker Tour and you want to come back on, you have a standing invitation anytime for as long as you like to come back and talk about whatever you want. You've honored the show by coming on, and uh, I can't say thank you enough times. It's my pleasure, Ashley. I'll be happy to join you anytime. Terrific. That's Mike Sexton, the ambassador to poker, uh, the renaissance man of poker. We'll be back after a break. Hi, listeners. This is Ashley Adams, and I'm looking to put together a House of Cards poker team to compete in team tournaments in New Hampshire. So I'm looking for players in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, who would be willing to be part of a House of Cards team to play in team tournaments. If you are interested, please contact us at info at houseofcardsradio.com. Info at houseofcardsradio.com. Poker players, listen up. Your right to play poker continues to come under attack. But with over 1 million members, the Poker Players Alliance is dedicated to protecting your right to play this great American pastime. Even if you've never played a hand of online poker, the Poker Players Alliance is fighting for you. No matter where you choose to play, the PPA is working hard to defend you, your rights, and the game of poker. The PPA is making great strides. But we still need your help. We have sent a clear message to lawmakers and others committed to prohibiting your right to play poker. We are organized and we vote. Add your voice to our cause and join the Poker Players Alliance today. Visit www.joinppa.org and become part of the fight to save poker. It only takes a few minutes to make a difference. The Poker Players Alliance, fighting to protect your freedom to play the game we love. Hey, you serious about poker? 
and winning 7-card stud by Ashley Adams is a must-have for stud players of all levels. In winning 7-card stud, the World Series of Poker Veteran takes you through a series of lessons and strategies designed to make you a better player in all phases of your game. The techniques of betting, the cards to play, how to read the other players, the art of bluffing, you'll learn to master them all. Winning 7-card stud by professional poker player Ashley Adams. Available at Amazon.com. Hi, listeners, this is Ashley Adams. I just wanted to uh, mention something, that if any of you have any poker questions that you would like to ask, we are always interested in your questions and comments about the show, about the guests, strategy questions. They could be practical questions about where and how to find the game. Send your questions to info at houseofcardsradio.com. And you can also get our tweets on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. We're very interested in them. And of course, if they are particularly interesting, we'll put them on the air and answer them here in our segment of mailbag. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. This is House of Cards Radio with Ashley Adams. All right, this is my show, and it's a serious intellectual hour of discussion, and I want to keep it that way. All right, in three, two, one. Magic hour. Welcome back, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. I'm joined by my producer, Dave Weishattle. Uh But before we go to the House of Cards mailbag, I just got to say, was that wonderful getting Mike Sexton on? I uh, He seems I, like one of the nicest guys in the world. Oh, he, he is, and uh, poker is lucky to have a guy of that caliber. I, I just wish that everybody that plays poker, every serious poker player, heard his words about how the good winning players need to behave at the table. Yeah, absolutely. As I think uh, that's instructed to everybody. All those guys that come to the table and criticize other people and hector the new players and mock them or berate them are doing a disservice. And uh, he knows that, and he's been around winning for a lot longer than anybody that I've been playing with, and uh, I hope everybody heard it. Anyway, um, so thanks, guys, for, for getting Mike Sexton to uh, appear as a guest. Isn't he one of the nicest, famous people we've ever had on the show? I mean, he could have gone, if we had a two-hour show, he could have hung around for another, another hour and a half. And he had an 18-year-old son in the yeah. background <laughs> that he was attending yeah. to, and he still uh, hung in there with us. I, I think it was great. But, you know, the truth is that poker has a lot of gems like him, and he is he's the best of the best. But, you know, poker uh, attracts, I find, a lot of really decent people in the industry, uh, and Anyway, so what do we have for questions? You know, uh, funny you should say uh, decent people, because I think Lisa from Cherry Hill wants to see how sensitive you are. All right. Have you ever felt bad for any of your poker-playing opponents when they are losing? Yes. Have you ever changed your betting strategies because of it? No. But here's what I have done. Um, Without mentioning any names, I had a home game. We used to play uh, pot limit, uh, $1, $2 blind, $200 buy-in, and it was dealer's choice. So, uh, you know, players could call. We wouldn't allow wild card games, but they could call all sorts of interesting variations of uh, stud or Hold'em or Omaha and double flop Omaha and uh, two qualifiers, and uh, you can uh, replace a card, all sorts of different variations. And I remember that uh, there was a guy, actually one of my friends from the synagogue, who was a, saw himself as a serious poker player. He was not a very good poker player, except seven stud. Seven stud, he was actually a winning player. He'd play 20-40 stud down at Foxwoods. But he did not know the other games, at least well. And he came to my house, and he was not well off, and he was uh, you know, borderline as far as even paying his bills. And I remember the first time he came, he came, and it was pathetic. He was he, he lost eleven or $1,200 that he didn't have. And... Uh, I felt very bad about it, and uh, I said, I said to him that I, I didn't think that he should come again. He insisted on coming, 
and uh, I just didn't invite him anymore and didn't let him come to the game. And then he got very sick, and I, uh, I talked to him, and we came up with an idea for a poker column called The Rabbi Speaks. And all the revenue that I got, and I sold the articles, uh, I gave to him and then eventually his widow because I just felt bad about having, you know, taken the money from him, even though he, you know, he was eager to play and he came to the table with money. I just felt, uh, I felt bad about it. So well, he, he kind of put you in a weird position, too. I yeah. Mean, he couldn't say no. I mean, you'd make him feel worse. Right. Um, but eventually I did. I mean, I didn't let him. I didn't invite him. I didn't let him know when the games were. And I think he got the message. And he just ended up going down to Foxwoods more and didn't play in our home game. And I think he knew that he was overmatched. And even though he wanted to come back and play, I think it was out of compulsion, not out of reason. But when reason got the better of him, he realized it was better that he not come because he was not able to win and couldn't afford to lose. So, um and I, I did not plan to tell that tale uh, to oh, people. Wow. But anyway, it ended up that the amount of money that was won from him in that, actually, I think it was two different games, ended up going back to his family in the form of articles that I wrote. But the proceeds, all the proceeds went to his family. So, but that's the, so yeah, I'm a sensitive guy. I got, I got to tell you, that's a rare story for a player. <laughs> but I didn't player. change my play. I didn't play <laughs> soft against him, uh-huh. and we were playing pot limits. Well, so. That's almost insulting, though. I mean, well, if, if, he's a, if he's a decent player, he'll, he'll know you were No, kinda, it had nothing you know. to do with not wanting to insult him. It had to do with when I'm playing poker, I am absolutely always playing my maximum game and never soft playing unless for strategic reasons I think I'm going to play soft to make the guy think that I'm not an aggressive player because uh, so I something think comes over you and that you know you have that I guess eye of the tiger kind of thing oh, that, just... it's no there's no I mean to me there's a way to play poker mm-hmm. and it's it's like going up if you're a good baseball player and not trying to hit the ball. You can't do that. I mean, you could do that, but you wouldn't. You would always try to hit the ball. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you're playing poker, you're always trying to – I'm always trying to play my best game uh, unless I deliberately want to not play my guest, best game so that, that somebody will my, come back. That was my next question. I, did you ever throw a hand so uh, i got to get this guy back at my next game? So maybe uh, – What I have I done, and only very rarely, I um, – I played suboptimally when I had won a lot of money because I was concerned that if I won more, I might not get invited back to a really good game. A couple of times I've done that, but not much because, frankly, in spite of what Mike Sexton said that, you know, uh, one out of a million chance he wouldn't win in any given session against the guys he played against, I find that when I'm playing my absolute best game, my advantage over seven opponents or eight opponents is not really all that great, and I have to play my best game to win. And uh, I'm, if I'm throwing hands, I'm throwing profit that I need mm-hmm. to have a winning year. So I, I rarely do, but there have been a couple of times. Okay, well, we're going to go to our next question okay, good. from uh, good. Nashua, New Hampshire. He's looking for some fish as the games are getting tougher. Where is the next big market and next big game for poker? Where will there be lots of new players? Uh, I think you're saying he wants to know where there are fish? I think so, yeah. Well, hmm. I would say that when Florida raises the limits, which they are all but certain to do from everybody I've talked to, uh, there are so many poker rooms in Florida and so many potential players that that would be a place to go. In the meantime, though, there are tons of easy games at Foxwoods and Mohegan at the $1, $2 no-limit level. You just have to look around a little bit and not get stuck to your seat if you're in a game with some very good aggressive players and no fish. Um, but you can definitely find them. Mohegan, in fact, more so than Foxwoods. I think because Mohegan seems to attract more commuter players from New York that are coming up. I'm sorry, more players that are staying overnight, drinking late, playing loosely there to have a kind of gambling weekend as opposed to Foxwoods, which has a lot of those players too, but they also have some regular players who are playing at Foxwoods for a living, even in the low stakes game. I think the ratio of bad players to good players is better now at Mohegan. Um, I would also say that the tournaments in New Hampshire, um, I haven't been there in the last four months, but um, there's a new room in Playstow, Plain Playstow, that uh, I would go to, Granite State Poker. 
And uh, any time there's a new room that's running promotions, that's a good place to go. Uh, new states that have opened up poker, I can't say off the top of my head. I don't know if the games in West Virginia are still wild. They're about two years old. I, I'm heading there, in fact, uh, this coming week, a week from now. I'll be in West Virginia to see what those games are like. How many places to play in West Virginia? Are two. There? Uh, really? Mountaineer and Wheeling Downs. Uh, they opened up about two years ago, and I've been told that they don't have much stud, if any, but they do have Hold'em, mm-hmm. and I want to check them out and see. Okay, Texas Hold'em is the big game right now. What next game do you see well, becoming big? The, well, I, don't, I can't predict the future in that way, but I can tell you this. I have a lot of very uh, serious... Holden players who all tell me the same thing, which is that they're quickly learning Pot Limit Omaha, that that's the game where a lot of the uh, producers are, where the the big money loose players are. Uh, But even that now, I suppose a lot of the very good players have moved into Pot Limit Omaha, and uh, now they say a little bit with a smile, but not a complete smile, is playing Badoogie. you got to learn how to play Badoogie, which, frankly... Uh, there's no books on it, so you got to learn by doing, and you have to have a good head for math to figure out the drawing odds in that game because it's not standard poker hands that you're playing. Uh, it's a different kind of a game. So, does, does the next big game have to be good for TV? I mean, is that going to make the difference? Well, it, it depends what you mean by the next big game. I don't think there's anything replacing Hold'em as the game no, you see on that's, television. That's the king no, right now, and I, I it think still you, will be. Right. I think so. I think what you were, you were talking about, though, is if you were... Uh, finding that Hold'em games are drying up and you're in a large poker-playing market or online, what game could you play where you might not have the same dense pack of serious good players? That game would be, for the most part, Pot Limit Omaha. But if you're talking about what's going to be televised next, I don't think anything's going to be televised next. I think it's going to be Hold'em. Hold'em and more Hold'em. Has television been good for... uh Poker. Oh, I, I mean, I mean, oh my God, I mean yes. for the purest poker player. Oh, uh, for, anybody. for anybody. Anybody with a brain, it's been good. I mean, if the definition of what's good for poker is more poker action, more places to play, more variety of games, more places to play, uh, bigger prize pools in the tournaments, but all it, those things. But have you good. run into poker purists who say, you know, uh, these new uh, media outlets are, like, destroying the game of poker and... I hate this. And well, poker players like to whine, and there are always <laughs> complainers, and there are certainly there are people, and there you know there is a school of thought. I think it's ridiculous that says, oh, with all the people that are now entering the tournaments, it's impossible to win because there are so many opponents. Well, you know, don't enter the big tournaments. Play cash games. The truth is that there's no question about it. By every standard, television has been good for poker. So I think that's the last question for today. Come back next week. That's been House of Cards. Everybody, good night and good luck. Listeners, this is Ashley Adams. I just wanted to uh, mention something, that if any of you have any poker questions that you would like to ask, we are always interested in your questions and comments about the show, about the guest strategy questions. They could be practical questions about where and how to find the game. Send your questions to info at houseofcardsradio.com. And you can also get our tweets on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. We're very interested in them. And of course, if they're particularly interesting, we'll put them on the air and answer them here in our segment of mailbag. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. Poker players, listen up. Your right to play poker continues to come under attack. But with over 1 million members, the Poker Players Alliance is dedicated to protecting your right to play this great American pastime. Even if you've never played a hand of online poker, the Poker Players Alliance is fighting for you. No matter where you choose to play, the PPA is working hard to defend you, your rights, and the game of poker. 
The PPA is making great strides, but we still need your help. We have sent a clear message to lawmakers and others committed to prohibiting your right to play poker. We are organized and we vote. Add your voice to our cause and join the Poker Players Alliance today. Visit www.joinppa.org and become part of the fight to save poker. It only takes a few minutes to make a difference. The Poker Players Alliance, fighting to protect your freedom to play the game we love. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.